Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Jingle bells and all that. It is time to deck the dog with boughs of holly. Christmas is here. It has been an extremely eventful year. On both a national and a personal level, it has been a rough year. I once again bless the NHS for being there one terrible night in February. Other family crises have followed, which have slowed the show to almost a crawl sometimes, and rather stopped some of my ambitious extra episodes. And it is a rather battered podcast host who stumbles into Christmas this year. But, as Gandalf would remind us, there is always hope. This year has also brought me new friends, the gift of music, new discoveries, a new role at work, and plenty of history. The podcast has listeners from around the world, from America and Canada to Uruguay, from Spain to Australia. Lots of you email me, which makes my day, and post messages on the Facebook group. So keep emailing, posting, and tweeting. A Merry Christmas to all of you, including Ingrid, Celeste, Gavin, Bibbs, Nick, Roger, Susan at the Birmingham Pen Museum, Chris, Catherine, Lanny, Glenn, Paul, Rob, Michelle, other Catherine who suggested an episode on tattoos that I really, really want to do, and so many more. A big thank you for David Crowther for being a bloody great bloke and mentioning me in his show sometimes on the History of England podcast now and again. I hope the Shed HQ is decked out in Christmas pineapples. There's also the delightful indie history podcast community like Bry and Fry from Pontifacts to Jacob at the podcast on Germany. There's Jenny at the Australian Histories podcast, Kelly and Emma at the Winning at Her Story podcast and Sarah at Rejects and Revolutionaries. I'm humbled to have some wonderful patrons who support the show. Your donations keep us ad-free and independent. Without you, there would be no JSTOR access, no Scrivener for drafting, and the website and hosting fees would sink me. My library would be half a shelf. So thank you to all of you, especially Rob, Michelle, David, Lloyd, Matt, Raven, Gregory, Lisa, Doc Pinko, and Jeff. I think we are all due a bit of rest. And it would be good to put our feet up for Christmas and unwind. Hopefully, this is a chance for you to relax with a good film. If you are a big fan of a classic Christmas film, you would want something like Die Hard or Elf. But if you are listening to this podcast, perhaps you want a good version of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Which one, though? That's a difficult question. And I hope today I can help you choose. What follows are my thoughts and insights on A Christmas Carol on screen. Nothing I'm about to say means you can't enjoy any version you like. I'm not going to tell you that you're having fun wrong. If I have rated your favourite too low or a version you hate too highly, chalk it up to the Christmas whiskey. As a quick refresher, in my first ever Christmas special, I said, surely you don't need me to tell you the story of Dickens. Christmas Carol. Everyone knows Tiny Tim 
and Scrooge and the ghosts. It's almost a cliché now. Scrooge is mean, some ghosts turn up, and then happy endings all round. Hmm. So, we've still got some myths and misconceptions to clear up. The full title is actually A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. It was published in 1843, and it was Dickens launching a savage attack on Victorian society. There are some big themes in the book to look into. It is not just a feel-good story for Christmas. It was a ghost story, a social commentary, a call for reform, and the story of redemption. It is focused on Scrooge, but it has a lot of other very memorable characters. The three ghosts have entered the national lexicon along with Bar Humbug, all of which means that any adaptation will have a lot to cram in. There are some core essentials to making a really good Christmas Carol adaptation. First is that you need a director and writer who understands the essence of it. Then it must be entertaining. It's no good getting the story right if it is interesting as a game of Monopoly after Christmas dinner. The original was read aloud and Dickens played all the parts. So a one-man show like the rightly famous stage show by Sir Patrick Stewart is absolutely fine. There is often a danger about focusing on Tiny Tim excessively and making it a feel-good film about how Scrooge turned into a jolly fellow just to save Tiny Tim. That is not the point Dickens was trying to make. Nor is Scrooge needlessly cruel about everything for the sake of being evil. In the original story, he is someone who was bitter and isolated as a child and he formed the view that only money and business mattered. This was reinforced by his work with Jacob Marley and he became more and more hardened to human suffering. He is also a critique of what Dickens saw as a prevailing Victorian obsession with debt that prioritised repayment over human suffering. Scrooge saw himself as upright and strictly an honest person. He expected debts to be repaid no matter what. If a person borrowed money, then they should repay it. And if they couldn't, that was a sign that they shouldn't have borrowed in the first place. He doesn't seem to understand or even care about personal circumstances changing or that people might be taking out debt to make up the shortfall in appalling wages. Nor does he consider that there are basic levels of dignity that a society should provide. At best, he refers to the prisons and workhouses, clearly referencing his view that poverty is caused by personal choices or being lazy. That means, to keep the character more true to the book, he shouldn't really be mindlessly evil. He's not a killer, or a rapist, or a Nazi. He doesn't seem interested in politics, empire, or anything really beyond money lending. He is still a deep character. He is a man who had a troubled childhood and reacted badly to a society that was harsh and filled with poverty. His father and other relatives all ignored him, except for his sister. He grew up with no real friends, so probably 
had serious attachment issues. He had a broken engagement and then only made friends with his partner, Jacob Marley. After Marley died, Scrooge retreated further and further into isolation. His business was the only thing he did and his home was a bare, unwelcoming place. His former fiancée, Belle, seems to get to the heart of it as she says, quote, You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you, have I not? End quote. At the heart of Scrooge is fear, and that fear blindly reached out for the certainty of money and stability to avoid poverty, and perhaps to avoid the human contact he longs for, yet which has hurt him so badly. In the modern world, we'd think he needed therapy, perhaps. None of this excuses the fact that he is the cause of immense suffering in the people around him, perhaps even indirectly causing people's deaths. So a Christmas Carol is in large part about not only personally redeeming Scrooge, but pulling him out of individual isolation and back into society. The ghosts and Scrooge's childhood are actually key parts of this story, far more than Tiny Tim. The Cratchits and Tiny Tim are the beneficiaries of the change. They help drive it, but they are not the real engine of change. They are part of the awakening of Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas future wouldn't have worked without the other two ghosts. So that's the core. Scrooge is on a personal journey of redemption with his soul itself at stake. The reader or viewer is being educated on the evils of a money-over-people approach to life and on how being part of a community is more important than individual monetary success. Helping others is a key part of that as it leads to the fullest flourishing of life. Christmas is more of the scenery than the point of the story. Besides, this book was a very important part of making the modern Christmas. Running entwined with this was a scathing attack on poverty, with ignorance and want being important spiritual apparitions, even if only briefly appearing in the text. It is easy to miss, but A Christmas Carol is a really, really angry book, like many of the Victorian novels on poverty. It isn't supposed to be a saccharine sweet. It isn't just grinning orphans, knocking on the door to sing happy tunes, then disappearing with their few pounds, so you can feel good at having been vaguely nice at Christmas. It is the angry kicking at the door of a man who wants you to look at the poverty all around you and bloody well do something every day, not make yourself feel good once a year with a faux gesture. My view, as will be clear, is that the best adaptations are angry, edgy and slightly dark in the right places. You can't be redeemed if you haven't fallen into the pit. You can't help people if you wear white and stand on the edge 
you have to climb down there with the fallen and get dirty hauling them out. As the ghost of Marley said, quote, mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Quote. The book has a long history of screen adaptations. The first was in 1901, only 31 years after Dickens had died. It was called Scrooge, or Marley's Ghost. It had a runtime of just six minutes and is available for free on the British Film Institute website. Please watch it. If nothing else, it is a tiny window to how people familiar with Dickens and Victorian theatre might have expected to see a stage set on film. Sadly, the last two minutes are missing, so we only get the ghosts of past, present and a tiny bit of future. It nicely shows the working simplicity of Bob Cratchit and family. Without the excessive poverty porn stylings of more modern adaptations, as I've said before, Scrooge paid Cratchit above average wages and since the whole family were working and able to rent an entire house with a kitchen, they were very far off the desperate poor. The Cratchits were not sleeping arms over a line of rope in a doss house for a penny a night or in a coffin bed or banging on the workhouse door. Plus, the special effects hold up well considering they are over 130 years old and frankly are rather better than some of the modern CGI horror stories. I'm not going to critique it. That's not fair on a piece of early silent cinema. It should be seen as a groundbreaking snippet of history and enjoyed as an amuse-bouche. Incidentally, this was not the first adaptation of a Dickens work for cinema. In 1900, there was a short film based on Bleak House called The Death of Poor Joe. Also, as a kind of honourable mention, I need you to know about Carol for Another Christmas, 1964, starring Sterling Hayden. This is perhaps the strangest Dickens adaptation ever. I'm not even sure it is really an adaptation sometimes. It is more a critique of Cold War paranoia in academia and the dangers of military isolationism and conservatism being mixed. Scrooge is called Daniel Grudge, a man so right-wing that he makes Richard Nixon look like a card-carrying member of Greenpeace. The plot revolves around being anti-American isolationist during the Cold War and the dangers of American conservatives being anti-war and anti-foreign engagement. It is so far away from what Dickens was writing that it is a terrible adaptation. But, unlike some of the others, it is a really interesting film on its own terms. Grudge is not only very right-wing, also a military isolationist who is fiercely anti-war due to losing his son in World War II. The ghost of Christmas past is the ghosts of all dead soldiers, encouraging him to talk to other countries and make America engage overseas 
rather than isolating himself, since this is the only way to avoid future wars. They even find time to stop in at Hiroshima in 1945 to see the aftermath. It was written by Rod Sterling, Twilight Zone fame, as a piece of propaganda for the United Nations. It is bizarre, like a feature-length Twilight Zone, a terrible adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but it is really worth a watch on its own terms. It foreshadows many of the political debates raging today, and is sometimes terrifyingly familiar, as you realise what is presented as too extreme for reality resembles many media storms and political debates today. It even has Peter Sellers in it. What more could you want? This should be watched with a good beer and some crisps, aka potato chips, after you've watched Dr. Strangelove. It is free on YouTube and has been colourised. I really recommend it. Here we go then. My non-exhaustive list of notable Christmas cow adaptations from worst to best. Starting with the trash tier. Choosing the worst is hard, as there have been many bad adaptations. With so many terrible versions on offer, it is a struggle. There had to be a last place, and it goes to... Drumroll, the 1970s Scrooge, a musical, starring Albert Fine. Terrible scripting, acting from a miscast lead that stinks like a three-week-old theatre ham, and core blimey Mary Poppins accents turned up to 11. The utterly awful song, Thank You Very Much, is not only tasteless, but it makes Scrooge oblivious to the actual death which was one of the moments that is supposed to shake him up so much in the book. Albert Fine bizarrely turns Scrooge into a hunchback homage to an am-dram to the third, but without any charm. Nor do I understand why so many adaptations of Scrooge go overboard with the makeup to turn him into a hag-type figure. He certainly wasn't. The song, I Hate People, completes the total misunderstanding of the character. No one involved seemed to understand the book, the characters, the point of the story, or even the concept of balanced acting. Just dreadful. I'd never waste good whiskey on watching this, and I'd need so many bad ones to get through it that my stomach would rot. The next is not much better. Rich Little's A Christmas Carol from 1978. Honestly, this and the last one could easily switch places depending on your view of musicals. Little's version is an updated take set in Chicago or Ohio or somewhere. The bargain basement wardrobes and sets make it mostly irrelevant. Little was an impressionist and decided to play each of the Dickens characters, which would be a tough ask even for Peter Sellers or Sir Patrick Stewart. Worse is that Little plays each character by doing a celebrity impersonation of a celebrity playing the role. If you've ever wondered what Jimmy Carter would look like playing the ghost of Christmas past, Little is here to show you very badly. I really can't think of much that could redeem this in any way, and it is also terribly, terribly dated by now. Avoid. Next up is the C tier serviceable but not really anything special here. 
Mr. Magoo's Christmas Special, a classic but dated cartoon. Whether you like it really depends on whether you grew up with Mr. Magoo and his brand of humour. Still, it gets many of the essentials in place, including Scrooge singing to his younger self about being alone in the world. Honestly, at this point, it is a bit old and a bit niche. I can't really call it a timeless classic or even a cult one. I suspect you'd struggle to get modern kids too interested. Moving on, A Christmas Carol, The Musical, 2004. Our second musical entry, starring Kelsey Grammer, who actually has the acting chops to pull off the role. He brings a good dose of gravitas to Scrooge, but sometimes strays a little into overblown theatre territory, more due to the director and the tone of the film than any shortcomings of his own acting. Naturally, Marley's musical number is a joyous ditty instead of a genuine lament. Of course, the music of the money-grubbing Marley has the hints of Fiddler on the Roof and is therefore vaguely anti-Semitic. Naturally, Scrooge is full-on people-hating panto villain at the start and there are some really overdone moments in the background. But the costumes are lovely and the party at Fezziwig's is spectacular. It really captures the sheer joy of a Victorian party very well. Jane Krakowski as the ghost of Christmas past was breathtaking and you can see why she is a Laurence Olivier award winner and a Tony award winning actress with multiple Emmy nominations. It is a scandal that she hasn't received an Emmy and she brings the needed screen presence for the ghost of Christmas past avoiding the tedious, cliched, wimpy child of many versions. Instead, she shines out as a memory of your greatest Christmases would, and almost pulls the film into the B-tier single-handedly. Unfortunately, the Ghost of Christmas Present sequences are more end-of-the-peer panto, and the Ghost of Christmas Future is about as menacing as an earnest 18-year-old door-to-door Jewish witness. A strong start that fizzles out, sadly. Moving up to B tier, this is where the really decent stuff sits. Any of them could move up to A tier, depending on your taste. Nothing wrong with any of them, and most nail the big beats very well. They could do with some improvements, but you can watch one and nod approvingly as you binge on the quality streets and afternoon tea with grandma or the grandkids. A Christmas Carol. 1984, starring George C. Scott, Angela Pleasance, Michael Carter, and Edward Woodward. That last one was perhaps the finest ghost of Christmas present. He seemed like the timeless winter king, ready for the endless cycle of death and rebirth, all played with a really straight bat, and all the better for it. A great adaptation, and the definitive version for many people. Perhaps the most classic version is the A Christmas Carol 1938, starring Reginald Owen. A real old-style Hollywood film, replete with full orchestrals and a kindly narrator, a pipe in an armchair. This is vintage cinema, but it sticks very closely to the original. The character of Scrooge is played as a cynical, money-focused man, one who isn't inherently evil. That is much more in line with how Dickens wanted 
a truly evil person would be hard to redeem. Scrooge had to still have hacity for redemption, and the timing had to be right in his life. If you want a straight-up, accurate, and very well-acted Christmas Carol, then this is for you. A-tier. We are in the big leagues now. Whilst not word-for-word perfect, these are either highly accurate or have an edgy or interesting and novel creative approach. Starting with an interesting take, a must-watch is The Man Who Invented Christmas. This 2017 film is about Dickens writing the famous story and his struggles with family, self-reflection, self-doubt, ego and the creative process. The characters of the novel take on more substance as Dickens works and reworks his ideas onto paper. One brilliant scene involves a maid reading the draft and in tears about Tiny Tim dying, then insisting Scrooge must save him. The reaction of both Dickens and the imaginary Scrooge in the background to this outburst is priceless. Some critics have trashed the film, especially The Guardian, whilst others adore it. I've fallen into the adoring it camp. Christopher Plummer as the imaginary Scrooge is like a death star first emerging onto the screen to draw all the attention and light to him. The streets of London are alive and we can see Dickens' connections with them. By now, listeners, you know that Dickens was an observer of people. He walked long and often. During writing A Christmas Carol, he was known to walk up to 10 to 15 miles in an almost creative haze. He talked to anyone and everyone to find inspiration, stories, facts, and to turn over rocks. The streets of London and the people in them are as essential to Dickens as they were to Sherlock Holmes. We get to enjoy the literary society he moved in and feel like we are watching a struggling author in Victorian society with the pressure of it all on his shoulders and no guarantee he will succeed. Watch it with a nice glass of Spanish red and a bowl of ice cream for a straight but very powerful adaptation than a Christmas carol with Sir Patrick Stewart is really hard to beat. I was lucky enough to see the stage show which confirms him as one of the finest actors since Olivier. The movie isn't quite as good as the magic of theatre, but it is still very, very good. It sticks closely to the book. Watching Patrick Stewart give Scrooge a thoughtful reflection at Fezziwig's party is a reminder that a restrained turn and letting the face and voice do the work is often more effective than wild gestures and expansive body language. The scene with the ghost of Christmas present and the children of man, want and ignorance is captivating. A must-watch for any listener to the podcast or anyone who appreciates acting as a craft. One to enjoy with a warm milk with honey and cinnamon and perhaps a dusting of cocoa or a real mulled wine and a proper mince pie. Finally, we are at the S or God tier. Films that either impress, perfectly capture the spirit of the book, or make you think and talk. You might not think they are perfect adaptations. You will absolutely remember them. The Muppets, 
Christmas Carol, a surprisingly accurate version. All the important elements are here. The feeling of Christmas, the original message, roughly all the important scenes and characters. Michael Caine, perfectly cast. Gonzo narrating. But the movie is stolen by Kermit the Frog as the perfect Bob Cratchit, who is brought to the front of this adaptation. Okay, the ghost of Christmas past is looking ancient, special effects-wise, and the proportions of the ghost of Christmas future are weird, but the Muppets bring Victorian London to life, and much of their acting is first class. Muppets Statler and Warndorf are evilly brilliant as Marley and Marley, and their musical number is a film stealer. I can't fault either the operators, voice actors, or the creators. The script is expertly crafted, with surprising amounts of the original novel slipped in. Kane intentionally played a straight character of Scrooge instead of a more humorous version, just because of the Muppets, and it anchors the film beautifully. He is a wonderful Scrooge. This is one for a good cup of tea with the kids, while seeing how much of the book you can map to the film. Okay, we are nearly out of time and space. I really struggled to pick my last two. This one will be controversial. FX's A Christmas Carol from 2019. It shouldn't really be called FX's A Christmas Carol, since it is actually a three-part BBC miniseries. It is not like any other adaptation, and is closer gothic horror mixed with Guy Ritchie's stylings. Edgy and sometimes downright nasty. It wasn't a huge success, and I imagine some listeners are surprised it has made the list at all. This version of Scrooge is just evil, often gratuitously and unnecessarily. He is a Me Too era bad guy who sexually humiliates a woman just to prove that everyone is awful and hypocritical. At times, it is unpleasant to watch. He doesn't get a true redemption, more a stay of execution. I'm a big fan though, not because it is wonderful or an accurate adaptation, or even particularly pleasant to watch always, but because it really gets the horror element of the book in a way I've never seen. This is a version where the spirits are terrifying to Scrooge, the viewer. Many other versions, including a lot on this list, have the spirits as almost kindly guides or running through an almost predetermined course. These spirits feel like Scrooge has been pulled into the abyss and is clinging onto his chance of redemption with his fingernails as he teeters on real damnation. It screams that the universe is not just rational, scientific, and understandable, but that the supernatural roar and raging as the Victorians would have felt it. The special effects are incredible, and Marley is a mouthpiece for the horrors of the Victorian factory system. This series almost wrenches you into the Victorian underbelly. If it makes you uncomfortable, it should do, because as you know from the podcast, that's what life for the Victorian poor was like. Some critics have stated it completely misses the point of the book in many ways, which is true, but also wrong. It does understand a very, very important part, which is Dickens' furious raging 
against the way society enables poverty with its unfair structures, its acceptance of mistreating the poor, and its willingness to let people starve to death just so other people can be rich. Watch this at Halloween. Watch this and then go stand on a picket line or protest. Feel the rage of Dickens the reformer, the agitator, and the fierce critic of the complacent majority. So, what could possibly take the top slot? To beat Sir Patrick Stewart, or Kermit, or Dickens talking to Scrooge as he writes the book and the character? Well, there's only one that can run away with the age of Victoria's crown for Christmas. Only one actor who can dominate a film, and that's Bill Murray in Scrooged. This is a version that captures the zeitgeist of both the 1980s TV era and also our angry internet age. This modern Scrooge, an angry TV executive called Frank Cross, is really nasty and angry and utterly selfish. He's obsessed with publicity and his own ego, dispensing casual pain on random people just to let his inner toddler erupt in uncontrolled tantrums, just like Scrooge would be if Dickens had written him today, I think. Cross is an uncomfortable mirror to the modern Alex Jones, Elon Musk, Rupert Murdoch and Jeff Bezos. Unrestrained by common humanity and utterly adrift from society, that's what a modern Scrooge would be. Many people, including Murray himself, felt the film was too loud, with too much shouting, and actually it works perfectly. All the modern updates just click, with just enough dark humour to drive the story and some cutting wit. Carol Kane, as the ghost of Christmas Present, is inspired, as was the casting of David Johansson as a New York cabbie, who is the ghost of Christmas Past. A bold choice for the former lead singer of a glam punk band, the New York Dolls. This is a cast and film as embedded in New York as Scrooge and Dickens were in London. The whole film has an almost Beetlejuice-esque vibe and a rawness that is often missing from modern films. It is stylish, irreverent and fresh even today. What kind of drink could you possibly pair with this? Perhaps an unusual cocktail, like a lemon drop martini using gin instead of vodka. Mix gin, lime juice, simple syrup in a sugar-rimmed cocktail glass and serve in your finest 1980s fashion. There you are. I hope you find something you like on this list and a few insights to go with your viewing. Please drink responsibly and in the words of a famous starship captain, Never drink to forget, and never drink alone. Alas, I can't compete with Hollywood. So now, my poor words alone shall have to try to transport you to Victorian England. How Peter Parley laid a ghost. I know it has been the habit of young people to speak of me and think of me as having always been an old man. Certainly, since I began to talk to my young friends, I have got considerably older than I was when I first introduced myself to them. But I have been a boy, like themselves, for all that, and I still appreciate and sympathise with all the delights and sorrows of boyhood and girlhood, with an exception. 
I do not appreciate and sympathise with the lights and sorrows which have cruelty, falsehood, or indeed any vice as their cause or consequence. Some follies also I am fain to overlook, but folly which endangers life or places people in peril which would not otherwise approach them, or folly which believes not in the suffering of others, I am very severe. Practical joking, a very common and often very fatal folly, is my special abhorrence. As a boy, I was not cleverer or more book-learned, nor more perfect than my contemporaries, nor than my present reader perhaps, but I kept myself clear, either by inclination or by force of advice, from certain fellows and follies which I now undertake to reprehend. I hope I have been just during these many years, for I have never rebuked boys for faults, which I was partial to in my early All this vastly dry, you'll say, and more like Peter Prosy than Peter Parley. I never begin a story wherein I have been myself concerned without telling my young friends that I don't profess to have been the perfection of boyhood, but that I vividly remember my youth and am, as far as kindness to youth is concerned, thorough sympathy with its pleasures and pains, a boy in heart still. Now, having said my perfunctory say, I will go on to relate a little adventure which befell me some, well, never mind how many, years ago. Near the village where I was born, there used to stand the remains of an old Gothic abbey, formerly dedicated, I believe, to some saint by name Olus. In medieval times, this name was all very well, but as centuries crept on, so fell away the appellation as the stones of the abbey themselves, and St. Olus Abbey was speedily corrupted to St. Owls, and finally into Owls Abbey. Perhaps the advanced state of decay in which this old ruin was in my day had helped to favour this title, for Owls Abbey deserved its name on account of the thousands of night birds which infested and rebuilt in it. At the same time of which I write, some respectable vestiges still remained of the old pile, a broken arch, a crumbling window, and so on, and I will take this opportunity of instructing my young friends in some of the points whereby they will in future be able to distinguish Gothic from Norman ruins. I often hear youths, otherwise well informed, commit sad blunders in their wild guesses at the different styles of architecture, so I will briefly tell them how to avoid such exposures of ignorance for the rest of their lives. Gothic architecture is often called, and very properly, pointed architecture. This one name will help as a guide, for by the term Gothic, we understand that style wherein the pointed arch, as applied to various purposes of construction, becomes a leading characteristic of the edifice. This sort of pointed architecture dates from the rise of Christianity itself and was probably devised in opposition to the pagan form of building. Some say that an avenue of overbranching trees was the object which suggested the Gothic arch. But though authorities are not agreed upon its origin, it is sufficient to remember that Gothic architecture is pointed, whilst Norman architecture has round arches. The splendid aisles of Westminster Abbey 
are almost unequaled as specimens of pointed arches, and you will now know that they are Gothic. Specimens of Norman arches you will find in Waltham Abbey and nearer home at St. Bartholomew's Church, West Smithfield. And these are in contradistinction round. There are many subdivisions of both Gothic and Norman, of course, but I have merely laid down the broad lines by which you will be able to decide on the architecture of this sort of ruin whenever you meet it, in your rambles or at picnics. Owls Abbey, then, was an old Gothic ruin, standing at the foot of Pleasant Green Hill and embosomed in fine trees. It was a picturesque spot and used to attract many visitors, pedestrian tourists and even our own village folk who would frequently take an alfresco dinner within the old grey walls while summertime and daylight lasted. While there was bright sun to light up the dark ivy and keep the bats and owls in their hiding places, picnics were not rare. Nutting parties would often wander amidst the ruins and adventurous seekers of nests and trappers of rats and rabbits penetrated the dim recesses of Owls Abbey at just periods of the year. But when winter stripped the fading trees and beneath the cold winter's moon the ruins looked ghastly white and skeleton-like in their leaflessness, there was no villager hardy enough to venture, even at sunset, into the dismal abbey. And as passing through it at night, though the short cut to many places, they thereby, that was out of the question. Why do you suppose? Because the simple villagers would have it that the abbey was haunted. Superstition is almost invariably the result of the want of education, or in plain English, the ignorant are almost always credulous. You will readily understand this by referring to many wonderful appliances of the day, such as gas, steam, electricity, as applied to telegraphs and so on. The which, if discovered only a hundred years ago, would certainly have brought their inventors to the stake as sorcerers. Yet the world, better informed in these times, regards such men as benefactors to their country and to the world. The old belief in ghosts, goblins, sprites and elves has helped to produce some very pretty poetry, but beyond this I cannot possibly see what gain there could be out of such folly. In these days, when science shows us what ghosts and apparitions really are, namely creations of a disordered body or a disordered we seldom come across haunted houses in cities. In villages, however, where education grows but slowly, you will generally find some spot supposed to be frequented by spirits and discover amongst the less informed folk a tendency to accept any foolish tale of hobgoblins as a serious truth. I don't believe that any of my readers are so silly as to feel alarmed at passing through dim and silent places by night. They have advantages now which make my belief in their good sense quite secure. The foolish people of the village round and about Owls Abbey were firmly persuaded that the old ruin was haunted by not only the traditional old abbot who had been barbarously slain at the sacking of the abbey by Oliver Cromwell, but by a more modern apparition 
reported to be the wraith of an unfortunate Irish peddler who had been waylaid, robbed and beaten to death by some desperados for the sake of his few brooches, etc. This renowned spectre was called Barney's Ghost and there were not a few who could declare they had seen this ghost apparently haunting amongst the underwood of the abbey for the contents of his pack. Wonders did not cease here, for even the little white stone bridge which spanned the village stream hard by the valley wherein the abbey stood had its mysterious visitor in the implacable person of a white lady who sat on the keystone of the arch engaged in doleful but tidy duty of combing her long golden hair, for the better accomplishment of which occupation the lady carried her head in her lap. Altogether, Owl's Abbey and its precincts supplied ample material for making the foolish villagers afraid of their own shadows. I was about fifteen when the events which I now relate took place. One fine evening in summertime, as I was returning from a day's fishing in the mill stream, at about a mile from the village, I saw a lot of men talking earnestly about old Lap the cobbler, who was seated outside his cottage, working in the cool of the day. I knew most of the men by sight, for the village was not a very extensive place. There were Joe Barrett, the blacksmith, his forge fire was out for the evening, old Abel Tandy, who was supposed to be the oldest inhabitant and lived very well on the strength of being too decrepit to work, Dick Millet, assistant at the flower factory, Jim Lanton, the town crier and others. But amongst them was a man I had never seen before and who was evidently a traveller only passing through the village. He had, it seems, from the conversation which I overheard, been inquiring into the village news and the village lions, amongst which you may be sure Barney's ghost and the white lady had been trotted out to great effect. The stranger had a smile on his face whilst old Lap was holding forth. Never you mind, mister. I see it, that's enough. I said the newcomer. What was it that you say you saw? Saw I? Saw I? retorted Lap. I did see it. There was Barney's ghost a-hunting about in the fens for lockets and chains, as was dropped thereabouts. A white, misty sort of figure. Not of this world, I know, and I knew it, for at once for Barney's spirit. Aye, chorused the bystanders. You're right, old Lap. When was the said Barney murdered, then? inquired the stranger. Ask Abel Tandy, said Barrett in a solemn voice. All eyes turned to the old man who, with considerable pride at such recollection, replied shrilly, Eighty years ago, come Michaelmas, eighty years ago, I was a boy then, and had seen Barney ever so many times. Aye, aye, it's all the time, eighty years ago. Why then, said the traveller, returning to old Lap, you can't be more than fifty-eight or so, and couldn't have seen Barney alive. How did you manage to recognise him? Haven't I been told that the spirit haunted the abbey and was seen to be groping about for his jewellery? And when I saw the figure a-doing so, wasn't I right in supposing it were Barney's ghost? Aye, sure, replied the chorus, delighted to see the champion of the ghost in ascendance. You mean to tell me that this abbey is haunted? Surely, 
shouted the chorus in perfect time. And you firmly believe it? Aye, surely. Why not? We've all seen it. And you wouldn't pass through the ruins at night. Not for all the world, was the unanimous shout. Ah, well, sneered the stranger. I'm sorry for you. It's my nearest cut, I'm told. And through the abbey I go. Barney and the white lady, notwithstanding. Goodbye, and more sense to you. So saying, the traveller shouldered his way out of the gaping bystanders, and briefly asked if he was in right in his direction, passed on whistling. Abel and old lap were speechless at their own particular ghost being so poo-pooed by a stranger, and all the gossips shook their foolish heads and hoped that nothing more would come of it. I went home much amused, but thinking of the stranger's face, which seemed to haunt me, was not a good face, but sly and cunning, and I thought cruel. When I rose next morning, I found on passing the village on my way to the little settlement, which lay on the other side of our abbey, another gathering of the worthies of the night before, their faces graver than ever. They had a strange story to tell everyone who had listened. The bank had been robbed, and more than that, several villagers' houses including the sagacious old laps, had been entered, and whatever was of the least value, stolen. There is enough here, you will say, to satisfy the most gossiping of our village. But superior to this excitement was the feeling of triumph at the signal defeat of the traveller the night before, who appears to have returned to the village about two hours after he left the discussion I have recorded, trembling with fear, white as a sheet, and teeth chattering. Twaddleton, our village, was avenged. Its legends had been verified, and the foolhardy stranger had been rewarded for his sneers by being frightened out of his wits at the sight of the white lady and Barney's ghost. This victory almost eclipsed the excitement of the robberies, but soon the reality of their losses wakened the silly gossips to a due sense of precaution. The stranger left the village by daylight. No more was heard of him. Next night, Dick Millet's grey mare disappeared from her paddock. Soon after, Joe Barrett's tools were missing from the forge, and positively Jam Lantern's brass bell was carried off. Twaddleton was aghast. Watch was set that in unguarded places a thief or thieves showed that they laughed Twaddleton to scorn, and every night some new robbery was bewailed. Things had gone on for a week, when the magistrate determined to send a Bow Street runner, a detective, we should call him now, from London. On the day that the man was sent for, my father permitted me to spend an evening with an uncle of mine, who lived at the neighbouring hamlet beyond Owls Abbey. I was delighted at the holiday, and when I prepared to return, I found that evening had overtaken me, and as I promised to be at home by a certain hour, there was nothing for it but to borrow a lantern from my uncle and take a shortcut through the wood, and, worse still, through Owl's Abbey. On being laughingly asked if I were afraid, of course I was bound to say not a bit, and with many good nights, and a bullseye lantern, I set off for Twaddleton. I was not superstitious, 
and I didn't for an instant believe in the apparitions of Barney or the White Lady, but I am willing to confess my feeling of a sense of loneliness and helplessness when I found myself in the dark wood with nothing to show the pathway but the little tunnel of light thrown by my lantern, which naturally made surrounding objects darker still. Sometimes a hare would dart across the narrow footway. Sometimes an owl would flit before my face like a cloud of feathers and startle me as I ran. But now I approached Owl's Abbey and my journey became interesting. As I got inside the territory of the ruins, I stumbled over a broken stone and my light was extinguished. Fortunately, the wood was past and there was quite enough little light left for me to pick my way in safe homewards. On I went, stepping from stone to stone and listening to the hooting of owls. Suddenly, I heard a laugh, distinctly a laugh, and close by me. I own that I was greatly startled, but I stood and listened again. There, the laugh was repeated, but this time I heard voices, apparently underground. I was not a little dismayed now, and all the village stories rushed across my brain, and I thought of Barney and the old abbot. Fear was, I confess it, getting the better of me. When I heard the neigh of a horse, somehow this touch of mortality, for I had never heard of the ghost of a horse in the abbey, reassured me, and I listened with greater intentness. The sound of hoofs trampling and some loud voices in correction now followed, and, guided by them, I found they proceeded from the old cellar in the refectory of the abbey. Kneeling down cautiously, I peeped through two worn-out pillars and saw the stranger traveller, another man I had never seen before, and Millet's grey mare. There sat the men, scrobbling over certain property, pilfered, no doubt, from our villagers, and there, tethered to a stone, was the unhappy old nag, who missed her warm quarters and regular feeds greatly. In a moment, I was decided. Stepping cautiously away, I posted out of Owl's Abbey, perfectly free from alarm now, full of joy at having found out the robbers, and determined to lose no time in setting justice on their track. On I ran, and on reaching the right lady's bridge, there, sure enough, was a white figure, sitting on a keystone of the ark. Mindful of my late experience, I went unflinchingly on. A cheery voice bade me good night. He was a countryman in a smock frock, resting on the bridge, evidently a stranger, or he would have respected the local tradition more. I told him what I had seen, and he kindly returned with me. On reaching Twaddleton, I told my story, and to my delight, a quiet man, who had listened carefully to my narrative, turned out to be the Bow Street runner. A cavalcade now formed, Barrett and Millet and Jim Lantern, and many more, shamed out of their compunctions by my experience, joined the troop, and without losing time, we returned to Owl's Abbey. Here, cautiously dividing our forces, the detective made me lead the way to the spot where I had heard the voices. As we approached, a neigh was heard. My old mare! For ninepence! roared Millet in ecstasy. In a moment there was a rush, a struggle, and the two rogues 
regular London thieves, were collared and handcuffed, having paved the way to plunder by trading on the foolish superstitions of the villagers. The principal robber had famed alarm to disarm superstition and used to return nightly thieves, knowing that while he and his accomplice and his plunder lay in Owl's Abbey, they were safe enough. The villains were punished in due course, and Twaddleton, having seen for itself that the reputed ghosts were all a myth, returned to its senses and used the shortcut ever afterwards. And this is how the Twaddleton ghost was laid. Well, not exactly a traditional ghost story. This was actually um, written by a pseudonym, Peter Parley, and it was often in the um, Peter Parley magazine, which ran from 1839 to 1863. It was designed um, to put out a Christmas annual and to edify children with nourishing and rather preachy uh, tales stuffed full of random common sense and interesting, I say interesting, facts about architecture and other trivia. It was typical of the sort of high-minded self-improvement style of story magazine that the Victorian middle classes loved. But perhaps, like me and other children, you might have been disappointed that the ghosts were just thieves and it lacked a lot of the sparkle of the true Victorian ghost story. But it does nicely show how village traditions clung on out there and that many a place in Victorian England still clung on to those old wives' tales and sometimes shivered at night. After all, it's easy to be comfortable and full of self-satisfied condemnation of the ignorant when you're in a well-lit townhouse. It's a little harder when you're on a farm in the dark and the wind still rattles the windows. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this Christmas special. Take care, and I will see you in the new year.